Well, good morning, church family. Man, what an incredible weekend we had last weekend as we celebrated our 33rd, really, birthday as a church family. I know that some of you were able to participate in that with us. Some of you were not, um, but at the end of the day, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal weekend together. We got to see many more people join the life of the church. You got to meet them for the very first time. Uh, it seems like every week now we're getting to see handfuls of people go through the baptism water. So let's just make a deal. You keep leading them to Jesus, and we'll keep baptizing them. How about that? All right. Let's just keep doing what the Lord has called us here to do. But I will say that as we enter into another year, now I don't mean that like fiscal year or even calendar year, another year into the life of us as a church. You know, we were born in the first weekend of November, so we enter into a new year together per se. But as we enter into a new year, we talked about last week what it looks like for Jesus to be our greatest treasure. And listen, if we really make Jesus our greatest treasure, I believe this will be one of the greatest years in the life of our church. And let me explain why. Because I think that when you make Jesus your truest and greatest treasure, and he is supreme in all manners of your life, that means your priorities begin to shift. And you make the gathering of God's people important. You make the people of God important. You make the mission of God important. And when those things become important in your life, they don't just transform you know, the things around you. They also transform you. And what happens is you start to release even more of yourself over to God. And as you continue to do that, not only is God working in you, but God also starts to work through you in a really amazing way. So I hope that that's what this next year will look like. Well, today we're going to be continuing our study in the life of David. We're in a series called The Broken King. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now, this chapter begins with a family feud, okay? But you will not see Steve Harvey anywhere in it, all right? For all of you family feud friends or, or, or people who love that show. Um, but what, what's happening here is there's two families that are at odds with each other. You have the house of Saul and you have the house of David. And what you see in this story is that you see a lot of sin manifest itself through the hearts of people. And that's what you're going to see all over 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now, listen. 2 Samuel chapter 3 is not a chapter that most of you are going to be familiar with, all right? So for many of you, I understand this, you're going to be hearing this chapter for the very first time, all right? This is not one of those stories that was told on the flannel board when you were a kid growing up in church, like you just didn't see it there. And if you read the children's Bible or you read to your kids the children's Bible, you're not going to find 2 Samuel chapter 3 in that Bible. But here's what I do believe. I believe 2 Samuel chapter 3 is an absolutely important chapter for us as the life of the church. And I think you'll see why I believe that when we get done with what we, what we do even this morning. What's so interesting about this particular chapter is you're going to see men wrestle with some of the very same sins that you and I still wrestle with even today. So the sins of the old still exist today. And they wrestled with them, and we wrestle with them too. 2 Samuel chapter 3, we're going to read in verse 1. It says this. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So what the Bible is telling you right here at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 3 is that there was a long period of hostility between two houses, the houses of Saul and the houses of David. 
So, so what does that actually mean? Remember, where we are in the story is that King Saul, the first king of Israel, is now dead. Next in line to occupy the throne is David. David has already been anointed king, but he just hasn't been yet crowned king. So David is next in line after King Saul's death. But there is one slight obstacle that stands in David's way. Abner, who is the commander and the chief of Saul's army, now that Saul's dead, Abner kind of takes the initiative to step into Saul's place in many regards. He took it upon himself to name Ishbosheth, who Saul's surviving son, the king. Okay? Uh, I know that's a lot. Well, you guys got Abner, who was the commander in chief. He took it upon himself to take one of Saul's sons, the surviving son, Ishbosheth, and he crowned him as king. Meanwhile, David, who's the anointed king over the tribe of Judah, that's the only tribe that he is going to be king over at this point in the text of Scripture. So what do you have going on here? There's 12 tribes of Israel. Eleven of those tribes are now being ruled and reigned by Ishbosheth. That's the house of Saul. And now one of these tribes is ruled and reigned by David. That's Judah. That's the house of David. So these two houses, the Bible tells us they are like a little brother and a big brother. They're constantly fighting with one another. And they do this for several years. So when we pick up our Bibles and we read 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, what it's telling us is that the house of Saul, those 11 tribes, they're growing weaker and weaker and weaker, while over here the house of David as he rules and reigns over Judah, they're growing stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, as we read this text together this morning, we're going to look at some characters that are in this text for us. But listen, each one of these characters really are a picture to us. And this picture is a warning to us about dealing with the sin that is in our life. Okay, so it's going to feel a little bit heavy this morning. But I think if we all pay attention, what's going to happen is we'll come out of this looking more like Jesus than we ever would have had we not walked through it together. Okay, so this is a warning to us. This text right here is a warning to us. We're going to see four pictures that are in this text that I want you to see this morning that serve as a warning to you, but also that will help you walk with Jesus, okay? First thing is this. We see the picture of Abner. Abner is a picture of the sin of selfishness. Abner, a picture of the sin of selfishness. Look at verse 6. It says, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, pay attention to this phrase. You might want to underline it. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So the Bible's telling you that the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker and weaker. Meanwhile, Abner, he's going to kind of step up and he wants the house of Saul to be stronger. So his idea of making the house of Saul stronger is to make himself stronger. Instead of looking out for the people, he starts to look inward at himself. Listen, this is something you and I have to get this morning. You cannot serve the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self simultaneously. You just can't do it. You cannot serve the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self simultaneously. Listen, the natural disposition of every human heart in this room is that it does exactly what Abner does, is we turn inward. We start looking out for self. We start serving self. 
and we want to promote self, and we want self to be satisfied. And what happens is we all start to exist and to leave, uh, or live for the kingdom of self, and when we do that, we're putting the kingdom of God in the back seat. It's the natural disposition of every single human heart. That is how our heart, by default, is designed because it's been tainted by sin. We want to be king of our own kingdom. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. He said, for, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, what is he talking about? Remember, Paul was in prison. And while Paul was in prison, he's basically surveying the landscape of the Roman world. And as he surveys the landscape of the Roman world, what he says is, man, almost everybody that comes to my mind, man, they're all self-serving. They've all kind of naturally defaulted to being their own king over their own kingdom. And Paul was saying to this church at Philippi, I want to send somebody to you. I'm thinking Timothy. I'm thinking Epaphroditus. Those two guys are dynamically different, but everyone else that comes to my mind, man, they're just self-serving individuals. And if you think that Paul um, is just talking about the people, I think, by the way, Christian people, what Paul actually does at the very beginning of the book, Philippians, in chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, is he actually says the pastors are this way too. That the pastors have self-ideologies that they're trying to push. And what's so interesting about this is what, what really Paul's trying to say to us is we're all guilty of trying to serve the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God simultaneously. He's saying to the pastors, myself, and to the pastors of this church, beware, there's a warning. You too can easily fall prey to serving self. You too can try to serve the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God simultaneously, and that's a dangerous place to be. But not only is he talking to us, he's talking to you. And he's saying that you are not above this either. That you too, in your just average daily lives, we try to serve the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. This was certainly true of Abner, and it's certainly true of us. I want you to consider for just a moment this morning how you might be living for the kingdom of self. Many of you have kept up with what's going on in Israel. Okay, Some of you, you haven't kept up with it as closely. But one of the things that that has come to the forefront of our minds as we continue to talk about Israel, is we start to think, okay, well, maybe this is the end times. And that's one of the hot topics of discussion right now among many, many churches, okay? If indeed it were among the end times, Paul tells us in Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, what's going to happen at the end times. What does he say in particular as it relates to kingdom of self versus kingdom of God that's going to happen in the end times? Do you know? He says we're going to become lovers of self. So, so when the world comes to an end, the people of the world are going to start turning inward and they're going to fall deeply in love with themselves. So if that is true, then I think it's okay for you and I to consider how we might be even doing that today. Let me ask you a couple of questions just as a way for you to consider if you are serving the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self simultaneously. First, do you submit to self as the ruler of your own life? Think about your life. And think about how you make decisions. Think about how you write checks. Think about how you give your time away in the average week. Who or what are you serving? Is it the kingdom of God? Or is it the kingdom of self? Think about this. Do you seek self-promotion 
Uh, is this something that you live your life for, to promote yourself on social media, or to pro- promote yourself before a watching world, to elevate who you are and to make other people think highly of you? Do you seek self-satisfaction, finding satisfaction and fulfillment in all the wrong things? Do you find yourself constantly defending your unbiblical political ideologies? Now, some of your political ideologies are rooted in Scripture. I get that. But some of your biblical or some of your ideologies aren't political ideologies. They're not rooted in Scripture. It's just traditions that you're unwilling to hold on to or unwilling to let go of. Do you find yourself constantly trying to centralize your relationships in your life? Rather than God and Christ being the center of your life, you put that relationship that marriage, your kids, sports, hobbies, education, career, you put that at the center point of your life. There's one thing that's emphatically true about every single person in this room. Our lives orbit around someone or something. My question is, is your life orbiting around God? Is it orbiting around his word? Is it Christocentric in that way? Are you serving the kingdom of heaven, or are you serving the kingdom of self? Ma'am, sir, I think as you walk through some of these questions, if you're anything like me, I had to dig deep, and I found some places in my life, really, where I'm existing for the kingdom of self and not for the kingdom of God. And that's okay. We need to find those things. We need the, the Bible. We need the Spirit to expose those things to us so that we can repent of those things and look more like Jesus. But listen to me, ma'am. Listen to me, sir. When you live for the kingdom of self, there is nothing more miserable than that. There is nothing more miserable than making your life all about you. You are not created nor designed by God to make your life all about you. This is one of the emphatic things that are true about the book of Philippians, as we alluded to it just a moment ago. Philippians is a book all about joy. But here you got Paul, where literally everything in his life was stripped away from him. He didn't get to live out any freedom that life offered him, and yet he still had immense joy. Why? Because the one thing that provided him joy was not able to be stripped away from him, and that was his relationship with Christ. And I wonder for you and I if everything in our individual lives, from a worldly standpoint, were stripped away from us, and all we had left was us and Jesus, would we still have joy? Or would joy be lacking? says in verse 7, Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Here, Abner is trying to do a power play. He's trying to make a move. See, in these days, one way you would try to acquire power was to go after the, the, the king's concubine. If you had her, then you would acquire power almost immediately. So Abner is going after Rizpah because she belonged to Saul, and Saul is now dead. But Ishbosheth sees this situation, and he knows exactly what's going on. Like he reads through it like a hawk. And he says, I know exactly what you do, you're doing. And what does Ishbosheth do? He rebukes Abner. That's what we just read. He says, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? I mean, not only is what you're doing incestuous. But what you are doing is to, is what you're attempting to do, is you're attempting to usurp the authority of the king. Well, that's exactly what Abner was doing. He wanted to be king himself. He was trying to position himself in a place 
of power. And how does Abner respond to Ishbosheth's rebuke? Look at verse 8. Well, he erupts in defense. By the way, you do understand that when you're guilty and you're in sin, one of the first responses to being rebuked or called out in your sin is to get defensive at it. It's to get angry at it and to begin defending it. And he says this. This is what Abner says. Am I a dog's head of Judah? I mean, to this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? Abner gets a little frustrated. He gets a little mad. And he says this really random and weird phrase, am I a dog's head of Judah? What he's saying is, why am I going to continue to serve you and continue to honor you, Ishbosheth? I'm the one who puts you in that place to begin with. Why would I continue to honor you and serve you if you're going to make these types of accusations against me? Instead, I should just deliver you over to David. Now pay attention to what he says next in verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So what Abner does is he erupts in anger. And essentially what he says to Ishbosheth is, I'm switching sides like I am entering the transfer portal. I'm changing teams. I'm no longer for Ishbosheth in the house of Saul. I'm now going to switch my allegiance to the house of David. But don't be fooled. Abner's not doing this to honor God. Abner's not doing this to even honor David. He's doing this because he realizes that this feud with Ishbosheth is a threat to his own potential for personal power. And the only thing standing in his way of getting that rightful position that he believes is his is Ishbosheth. So he wants to remove that from the picture. He's mad, he's made bad decisions, and now he's threatening to change loyalties. Here's another thing that you and I can learn from this text of Scripture. Listen, selfish people make selfish decisions. Selfish people make selfish decisions. It's just what we do. This principle might sound very elementary for a lot of us, but I don't think we need to forget it. That selfish people, namely you and I, they make selfish decisions. See, Abner says here, what the Lord has sworn to him in verse 9. See, Abner knew it was God's revealed purpose for David to be king. He, he's admitting that. Th this, is what, this is what David is supposed to be. This is where David is supposed to be. We already know because God has sworn him to be there. And yet Abner still disregarded what God decreed. Why do you think Abner disregarded God's command? It's simple. Because Abner wanted to be king himself. The very same things that caused you and me to disregard the commands of Scripture are the things that drove Abner to disregard the things of Scripture. We want to be king of our own individual kingdom. You and I are selfish people. Now I know that you're not going to walk out of here today and feel like your feathers were fluffed, okay? You won't. But we are selfish people. 
And as such, we make selfish decisions. Quite frankly, when we read this story, we should see a whole lot of Abner in us. It it should almost feel like we're looking at ourselves in the mirror, saying, man, I do the exact same thing. We fight for the right to rule in so many areas of our life. I just want to mention three of them this morning. We fight for the right to rule in our time. Time is something that God gives us to steward well for his glory. And yet we use our time in a way that dishonors him. Most of us do. We don't prioritize the gathering of God's people. That seems anti-gospel. I mean, just in and of itself, right? We don't prioritize the people of God, doing relationship with them and opening ourselves up and being a little bit vulnerable with them and allowing them to speak truth into our lives and allowing us to speak truth in their lives and doing what real biblical community actually looks like. We don't prioritize God's gathering. We don't prioritize God's people. We don't prioritize his church. Instead, our time gets sucked away into all of our hobbies and all of our sport activities and all of our, you know, leisures and all the things that we want to do. And the simple question has to come back to the front of the table, and that is this. Are you serving the kingdom of God or are you serving the kingdom of self? And you can't keep ignoring the reality of the situation. If you do, you're on a very dangerous road to your own demise and destruction. But Jesus says, I didn't design you like that. I designed you to exist not for you, but for me. You live for my glory. And when you do, you'll experience the most amount of joy that you've ever experienced in all of your life. And it won't always make sense. It's just true. So we do this with our time. We do this with our talents. God gave you gifts. He gave you certain skills. Do you know why? Read Romans. Read Corinthians. Do you know why God gave you those gifts? He gave them to you to serve your church. Just read. He didn't give you those gifts so that you could just have a really good career path. I used to work with a 501c3 faith-funded organization. He didn't give you that just to serve that, though they should be used there. We should use our skills and gifts outside the walls of the church. He gave them to you to serve the body of Christ so that the body of Christ, the local church, would have everything it needs to function and operate the the way that God has designed it to, to exist and function. What about your treasures? Many of us, we don't give faithfully to the body of Christ for this specific reason, because we want the right to rule. We want to make the decision of where the money we worked hard for goes. And I think this is so interesting because I'm challenged by it. I think about this all the time. If God came to Trey and said, hey, Trey, here's the deal. I'm going to give you 100 bucks. I just want you to give 10 of that back to me. As soon as, as, soon as we do this, I'm just going to go ahead and, and give it back, give you 100, and I want you to turn around and give me 10. Who wouldn't make that deal? Like, none of us wouldn't make that. All of us would make that deal, right? I I profit $90 off of that. And that's exactly what God does. God says, I'm going to give you this, and what I give you, I just want you to return. I don't really believe the 10% rule, but you know that through the Wisdom and Wealth series, whatever. But that's at least the base of it, right? So you start to think about that, and then what disrupts that? What disrupts it for us is, well, I got a $95 bill on the table. So how do, I, how do you give me 100 I got to give you 10 back. How do I pay that $95 bill? And in many ways, God looks at you and he's like, well, I'm God. Like, do you not, do you not think I can figure that out? Don't you think I'm a God of provision, of sovereignty? Don't you know the importance that faith plays in the life of a believer? 
like what happens is I start to supply it and then your faith begins to grow and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and then I put you through even more challenging things that you're going to say no to at first and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper and that's the way God works but we do this in our own individual individual lives selfish people make selfish decisions that's the picture of Abner there's a second thing here David David I want you to see David he's a picture of the sin of carelessness carelessness look at verse 12 and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And then David responds in verse 13. He says, Good, I will make a covenant with you. Well, up to this point in the text, David has been a man full of wisdom. Almost everything about David has pointed us to the life of Christ in a good way. But now what we see is that David is making an allegiance, a covenant with the wrong person. Abner is not the kind of guy David should be making a covenant with. He becomes a little bit careless. Abner's not loyal. He's not a guy you can trust. It's a bad deal for David. But to make matters worse, David not only makes a covenant with Abner, but he sends Abner to go find his first wife, Michael. You remember that story when King Saul was alive? King Saul wanted David dead. He felt like David was a threat to his own kingdom. Yet David and Michael, they had a, a love for each other, and they talk, and what does uh, King Saul tell David? Hey, I'll exchange Michael to you if you go and you find 100 foreskins of uh, Philistines that are out there. If you go and kill 100 Philistines, bring back their foreskins. I'll let you think about how all that works. And he brings back those foreskins, and then you get my daughter. Well, he brings back more than 100, and the Bible tells us that, right? And then he gets Michael. The Bible tells us that they love each other. But in the first year of their marriage, David has to leave his wife and flee for his own life because his father-in-law, King Saul, was out to try to kill him. I mean, that's David's life in his new marriage with Michael in their very first year. Well, now, fast forward to 2 Samuel, where years after this, now Michael, she's married to another man and has a family of her own. And David's coming back saying, hey, why don't you go get her and bring her to me? When the king makes the request, what do people do? They respond. So they go and find Michael in her own home with her new family, and they abduct her from the home to bring her back to King David. Meanwhile, it's a sad story in Scripture. You see it right here if you read it. Meanwhile, Michael's new husband is grieving as she follows, as he follows and watches uh, this series of events. Listen, why, why is David doing this? Everything about this is driven by greed. It's a careless decision. The Bible tells you in verses 2 through 5 that David now has six wives. Why does he need one more? It's driven by greed. David knows that if, if he could get Michael back on his side and over to him, then all of Israel would be more accepting of him because he now possesses Saul's daughter. It's a careless, careless decision. We don't like to think of carelessness as sin. But honestly, the root of carelessness is what gives birth to many of the sins that are in our individual lives. David became careless in his relationship with people by making a covenant with someone who was disingenuous. David became careless by allowing greed to rule in his life, by seeking another man's wife. 
What can you and I learn from that? It's simple. Even godly men fall. Even godly women fall. The godly fall. Many of you, you've been plagued by people that you have held in high esteem that you would have called godly that you know have fallen in your own individual life. The beautiful proverb found in Proverbs 24, 16 says this, even though these men or women, though they may fall, if they're truly in the family of God and if they're truly godly, guess what they do? They get back up. They get back up. That's the beauty about the text of Scripture. David here is a picture of carelessness. But even David, you'll see later, he does get back up. And there's a third picture here. I'm going to slide through this one. It says, uh, the third picture is Joab. Joab. Joab is a picture of the sin of bitterness. So we've seen the sin of selfishness. We've seen now the sin of carelessness. Now we're seeing the sin of bitterness. Joab, he's one of David's servants. He makes his presence here in chapter 3. And what I love about Joab is when he comes on the scene, he's absolutely shocked that David's make this covenant with Abner. He, even he knew immediately that's a bad idea. Look at verse 23. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's now gone? Joab is saying to David, you do know Abner is a type of guy that you're supposed to keep on a, an extremely short leash. Like he is not one of these guys you just want to let out of your sight. Because the moment he's out of your sight, he's working against you. David, why first would you make a covenant with him? Second, when you made the covenant, why would you let him go anywhere where you couldn't watch over him? Terrible decision, David. And then he says in verse 25, you know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So Joab looks at David square in the eye and says, Abner is deceptive. He's not someone you can trust. He's not for you. He's only for himself. What's Joab doing? Joab's calling David out. He's rebuking him in his careless decision. And at the moment here where you think Joab is somewhat heroic, he's going to come in and he's going to save the day. Well, we get to read verses 26 through 30. What happens there? Joab leaves David and sends messengers to go out and to get Abner. Bring Abner here. And when Abner returns, what does Joab do? Joab walks up to him like a good old buddy and puts his arm around Abner's neck. And he says, man, let's go for a little talk. I want to share something with him. He takes him to the side of the building. They get to the side of the building and he punches him in the gut until he dies. And he kills him. Now what I haven't told you is that Abner in war previously had killed Joab's relative. And Joab had held on to that and sought vengeance at the first moment of opportunity. It was bitterness that he never dealt with. Bitterness that ruled his heart. By the way, Joab is not the best accountability partner, just for those of you who are wondering. He confronts David in his foolishness, and then what does he do? He turns around and goes and does something completely foolish on his own. He murders Abner. 
what was the motive in all of this? The motive is revenge. The motive is that there was bitterness in his heart that, that grew and grew and grew and grew and was never dealt with, never repented of, never laid down at the feet of the Lord until eventually it took over his own soul. Church, listen to me well. We are not above this. You are not above this. There is nothing more dangerous to your spiritual vitality than thinking that you can hold on to a little bit of bitterness and leave it undealt with. It will ruin you. It will ruin others. It will ruin the church. Bitterness is like poisoned ice cream that's dipped in chocolate. I mean, you look at it and you're like, man, that looks good. And then you eat it and it tastes really good. But as it begins to settle in the inside, it eats away at you like nothing else can. And before you know it, it destroys you from the inside out. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, let all bitterness be put away from you. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Joab is a picture of the sin of bitterness. And there's a fourth and final picture this morning as the band comes up to play. The fourth picture is Jesus. Jesus. This is a picture of the forgiveness of sin. A picture of the forgiveness of sin. See, this passage ends with David and all of his people mourning over the death of Abner. Here they are, they're gathered together, and they're mourning over this particular death. In fact, we're told that David here takes time to fast. He takes time to pray. And not only does he take time to fast and to pray, but he even goes another level and he decides he's going to write a poem in honor and in memory of Abner. And then I want you to listen to what happens in verse 36. It says, and all the people took notice of it. This is how David's grieving Abner. And it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. This is where the pages of redemption turn. God is using all of this drama to give David favor in the eyes of the people of Israel. God is redeeming Abner's selfishness. And God is redeeming David's bitterness. And God is redeeming, or David's care, carelessness. And God is redeeming Joab's bitterness. And he's bringing all of this together for his own good and for his own glory. Every evil intention of the heart of humans is being used here to advance the purposes of God. Let me ask you a question. Is redemption messy? It absolutely is. Redemption is ridiculously messy. This story in 2 Samuel 3 is not a story of enchanted woods. It's not a story that Disney would put together for you to go and watch. This isn't even a Hallmark film. This is a messy, sin-infested story. And you and I, we live in a messy, sin-infested world. But here is what we can learn from this and walk away knowing is emphatically true because we see it here in Scripture. This is it. Sometimes the worst things to ever happen 
are the best things ever done. That's the story of redemption. Sometimes the worst things to ever happen are the best things ever done. You serve a God who could not sin. He's incapable of it. This God looked upon you and said, man, the world is jacked up because of the sinful heart of human beings who have decided to exist for their own right to rule rather than allowing me to have the right and to rule their own individual lives. So God, in all his goodness, in all of his glory, clothed himself in human flesh and came to dwell among his people. He would never sin. He would live with us in all of his humanity and all of his deity. And he'd walk the face of this earth for one particular purpose. What was that? To one day forever reconcile those who would place their faith and trust in him forever back to the Father. A good and faithful God would send his one and only son. And what did we do? You and I, we did perhaps the worst thing that could have ever happened. We rejected him. We despised him. We mocked him. We beat him. We put nails in his hands. We put a crown of thorns on his brow. We allowed literally every single ounce of his blood to be drenched and drained out of his body. We crucified him on an old rugged cross where he died a criminal's death, but yet never sinned. We did the worst thing that could have ever happened. But church, sometimes the worst things that ever happen are yet the best things that could have ever been done. Because it was that very crucifixion that would lead him to an empty tomb. And three days later, that would lead him to bust forth out of that grave, claiming victory over every single sin that you and I would ever commit in our past, in our present, or even in our future. So what did God do through the sending of his son? He redeemed us. He redeemed our carelessness. He redeemed our bitterness. He redeemed our selfishness. And what is he in process of doing? He's in process of restoring me and you, bitter and selfish and careless people, back into the image of his son in this wonderful process called sanctification, where every single day, we see ourselves in light of his word and say, man, I am selfish and I am careless and I am bitter. But God, but God, through the sending of his son, is restoring all things back to himself.